Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. We had an extra little um, sort of frisson this week, didn't we? We were at the Radio Academy. We did. So it's the Radio Academy's annual festival and we recorded a thing there, which you'll be able to hear at some point in the future. Um, but it, it was touch and go. So basically they'd asked us to come and record a live episode of the podcast. But it was the same day that the House of Lords sent back Leveson 2 to the House of Commons. I was quite anxious watching it. On one hand, I was thinking, I really hope they win the vote here. Um, But then on the other hand, I was thinking, but if they lose, he can probably get out quicker. (laughs) So I was quite conflicted. I made made it, though. Yeah. Um, It was weird watching you um, in the House. Because I was sitting here with BBC Parliament on. And... The the position you were in, do you do you have the same seat every time you're in the House of Commons? I don't Commons? really know. I haven't really mastered that. Ken Clark always sits in a particular place. Right. Dennis Skinner always sits in a particular place. So it's so called below the gangway on the bottom on the you know, on the sort of front row. So is it down to sort of how, how long you've been there? No, it's just down to sort of what's available. And you don't go in and put your towel down first thing in the morning. You like could on... do there is a way of doing that, I think an order a sort of name badge or something, but I haven't I haven't sort of I haven't done that. I thought there was a bit of manspreading going on, though. You sort of strewed your papers and your bags all over the seat next to you. Oh, dear. Is that frowned upon? Well, obviously by you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we had a good time at the, the we did have a good festival. Time. Yeah. We did have a good time. And, and, it was, able- and the people will be able to hear it. Mm. So this week, we're talking about the disaster that is the criminal justice system. Um, and, you know, I've read an absolutely amazing, gripping book by... The Secret Barrister, who is somebody who has been on Twitter, has got this best-selling book, which is, I think, spread by word of mouth, about their experience as a barrister with the criminal justice system. I'm delighted to say that we'll be interviewing them. Their voice will be distorted because they're anonymous. We don't want to give away their um, identity, and and we're we're under strict instructions to do that. But they're going to be talking about their experience of the criminal justice system. And then we're also going to be joined by... Uh, Penelope Gibbs, who's the director of Transform Justice, to give us some ideas about what we can do about it. And when I'm talking about the system being a disaster, when you read this book, it's everything from the 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 treatment of victims, the you know failure to deliver timely justice, um, defendants not getting proper legal representation because of cuts to legal aid, the court service just sort of almost grinding to a halt, and we're in the middle of a strike of a sort by. criminal justice barristers who have refused since April to take on new clients under legal aid because they are so angry about what has happened to the system. Right, that's what was going on when I went past the court on the bus earlier on because they're all gathered around an oil drum and they had donkey jackets on, people were bibbing as they went past. I think you're you're making that up. (laughs) 
But it is a really, really. I mean, honestly, I mean, it this sounds book, this sounds like a reason to be dismal, though. To feel I'm dismal. sure there are reasons to be cheerful, but you know, I think partly it's the hidden cost of austerity because the of all of the government departments, the Ministry of Justice has been cut by more than the other. I think it's forty percent since 2010, and you know. Just because most people don't come into contact with the criminal justice system, you know, most days, I think it doesn't mean it should. The, these problems should be hidden, and we've got to talk about how we solve them. And in addition to that, we are joined by comedian Alfie Brown, who's going to be pitching some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. What's yours? Uh, what can I give you? Oh, um, I had someone around for lunch the other day, and I made an exception. Was it George Ezra? It was. <laughs> I saw that you and her, your bromance has been continuing on Twitter. No, it turned out to be a fake account. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. You you got catfished by a fake yeah, George Emma, Osha. Emma, Emma pointed out to me it was a fake account. But most people on Twitter seem to believe it. <laughs> this is great. You've been catfished. Yeah. Is that what could call it catfish? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, oh, that's good. That makes I me, mean, maybe that could be my reason to be cheerful. But if not, I was just going to mention um, I made an exceptional lunch had a friend round the other day, and I made something called a 100 garlic clove curry, which was out of a cookbook by Mira Soda. And um, there were three of us, and I'd say we consumed, you know, averaging it out 33 and a third garlic cloves each. Just garlic cloves? Yes, yeah, fairly much. Garlic cloves, spices, and a little bit of coconut milk, but it was exceptional. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I suffered for some days afterwards. Gosh. Yeah, but uh, I, I recommend it if you want a recipe to look up. Definitely. So my reason to be cheerful is that I can exclusively tell you that Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, listens to reasons to be cheerful. He's obviously listened to episode 16 on the epic rail fail because he's renationalised East Coast. That's great. I mean, obviously... We're making a difference. Exactly. We've got cabinet members who are listeners. <laughs> I mean, this is such a Horlix. It is just not even true what a mess this is. It's a Horlix? Yeah. What's a Horlix? Is this well, another like edism? You've made a Horlix of it. What? You've made a Horlicks I've never it. heard it. Is, it. is it because it sounds like bollocks? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let, let me tell you, the first thing that comes up when you Google made a Horlicks of it is, as far as it's actually from the Telegraph, the entry which it ascribes to the late 20th century, that's sort of rather <laughs> me, describes Horlicks as a mess, a muddle, chiefly in make a Horlicks of slang. Nonetheless, the origins of the slang are not certain. One theory is that the word Horlicks began to be used in the 30s as a polite alternative to bollocks. So I was right. So I'm either stuck in the 1930s or the <laughs> 1980s, depending on your choice. Um, anyway, back to the East Coast um, Horlicks. Uh, so just to remind you of this sort of long-running saga of railway folk, um, it, the in 2009... The government, the Labour government, renationalised East Coast. It was run quite successfully for a few years. The coalition government were desperate to privatise it. They forbade um, the public operators from running it. They parcelled it out in 2015 to Stagecoach and Virgin, who bid £3.3 billion for it. Now the whole thing has collapsed because Stagecoach and Virgin say, well, we can't run it anymore. We, we, all our numbers were wrong. The government is losing – well, the government will not get £2 billion of that £3.3 billion because all the payments were backloaded. And lo and behold, it's back in public hands. And Chris Grayling now says he still wants to privatise it again in 2020. I mean, if ever you're making the case for publicly owned railways, this is it. <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm delighted that we're joined now by the secret barrister um, who has not just an award-winning blog, but a best-selling book called The Secret Barrister, Stories of the Law and How It's Broken. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hello, Ed. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. So... Your book, which I read and really, really, I wouldn't say enjoyed, but I found incredibly informative um, and, and a must read, paints a very bleak picture of the criminal justice system based on your own experience on, on the front line. For people who haven't yet read the book, can you just talk through some of the key points and key experiences which which highlight the, the, the state of the system as you see it? Yes. Well, I've been a criminal barrister for the best part of a decade. And what struck me and what compelled me to write the book is how in daily practice, uh, so many key 
fundamental parts of the criminal justice system are simply not working. And that is largely due to 40% cuts to the Ministry of Justice budget um, and to the various criminal justice agencies, which mean that the very basics involved in bringing a criminal prosecution to court and ensuring a fair trial um, are simply not done. And in the book, I aim to take a walk through um, the general process of a criminal case from the first appearance in the magistrate's court uh, right through to a Crown Court trial, looking at how all the various elements come together. And the the illustrations that I use, um, most of which are from my own practice, um, suggest, I, I would say, that there's an awful lot that we're we're getting wrong. And I look at, for example, the way that cases are prosecuted, the fact that the Crown Prosecution Service has lost a third of its workforce since uh, 2010, how its budget has been cut by a quarter, how police have lost uh, over 20,000 officers, and how, as a consequence, cases which are serious and are brought to court end up collapsing simply because there are not the resources to get the basic evidence in place. Um, so that's one example. I also look at how, on the other side, people who are accused of criminal offences, perhaps wrongly, are cut out of legal aid and denied legal representation, and how in, in many cases, and in, in an increasing number of cases, people who um, are accused of a criminal offence are refused legal aid by the state, and then when they are later acquitted, um, are, are refused the money back that they've spent on trying to uh, secure their acquittal. And so those are just a couple of examples, but in essence, the rather depressing conclusion I reach is that there's a lot wrong with the criminal justice system. Um, and it's something which I think the public deserves to know about. You had one particularly sort of striking and and depressing case of of um, of somebody who I, I believe you were trying to prosecute for allegedly practicing terrible violence on their girlfriend or partner, and you explained and it might be just worth you taking our listeners through it how that person ended up just sort of going free without the without the trial ever happening. Yes, that's right. It was a case in which I was prosecuting a man who was charged with a very serious offence of violence against his partner. She was a particularly vulnerable young woman and she had uh, finally reported to the police a, a long and upsetting history of abuse that she suffered at his hands. And due to a failure by the prosecuting authorities and as the barrister instructed to prosecute, I was unable to say whether that was the fault of the prosecution service or the police, but for whatever reason, the very basic evidence, by which I mean the medical evidence proving her injuries and a full witness statement from her, simply never materialised and the court gave repeated chances to the prosecution to get its house in order. And ultimately, when that didn't happen, after repeated uh, opportunities, the judge said he had no choice but to bring the prosecution to a halt. And you were sort of tearing your hair out, weren't you? Because, you know, you first asked the pol- when you got this case, you first asked the police to get the witness statement and the medical record from the from the woman concerned and the medical records. And then they just sent you to court with a statement from her saying that she would make a statement. And then you sent them back for to, you had your final chance a week later and then you you came up empty again. Well, that's right, and it's it was a particularly upsetting case because of its nature, and because we see in the criminal courts an awful lot of cases where very vulnerable complainants uh, make claims of domestic violence against their partner, and those cases don't get as far as trial because the complainant withdraws her support for the prosecution. She decides not to attend. And as a consequence, it's a reality that um, men who have been violent to their partners get away with it. And because in this case we appeared to have a complainant who was willing to cooperate, it's, it was even more upsetting on a personal level that 
for reasons unexplained, we weren't able to, to progress the case. But it's, it's sadly not unusual. This is the message that I, I emphasise in the book. This is just one lone example of systemic problems where the system simply does not have the people nor the resources to get the basics in place. And in the same chapter in the book, I go on to give some examples of cases where I was defending and where my clients were the beneficiaries of errors by the prosecution, in which, again, very, very simple things, um, such as getting complete statements from from complainants or, or producing the, the barest of evidence it is simply not done. And that often does come against a background of prosecuting barristers and, and CPS lawyers as well, saying, look, this needs to be done. But it just doesn't. And, and part of that, I would, I would suggest, is due to the impossible workloads under which Crown Prosecution Service employees and police officers are expected to work. So why do you think we've got to this point? Why, why do you think that the criminal justice system is so low down in the list of priorities for politicians? I think the problem that we have is that all of us view criminal justice, unless we are unlucky enough to be dragged kicking and screaming into the system, as something which simply doesn't affect us and so therefore doesn't matter. And it's that disconnect. We don't see criminal justice as something that is ours. It's not like the NHS or schools. It's very easy to to distance yourself from it and to assume that it is only used by people who are criminals or who have somehow done something to deserve being inside a criminal court. Whereas the, the reality that I'm hoping to bring home with the book is that criminal justice is something that belongs to all of us and it affects all of us because while none of us ever expect to appear in a criminal court many if not most of us in so, at some point in our lives in some capacity do people generally don't choose to be victims of crime people don't choose to be wrongly accused but those things happen we see them in the criminal courts every day and i think it's a failure perhaps collectively um uh, among the public to to recognise that it is something which affects us all intimately, but means we we don't give a consideration and we're we perhaps or we certainly are I'd say far less protective of it um, than we should be. And how long do you think it's been in this um, state? Because obviously you've talked about the cuts uh, that have happened in the last eight years to the system, but how 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 long standing are these problems? Would you say? Well, some of the problems go back decades. There's a quote in the book which I borrow about the Crown Prosecution Service. It's from a, a, an official report, the Runciman Commission, in which it described how there were many difficulties with the CPS caused by chronic underfunding. That report was dated 1993. So it's certainly not a brand new phenomenon. But what I think I can safely say, and I think I'd be supported by other practitioners in the criminal justice system, is that the system or problems have got noticeably worse uh, over the, the past decade and uh, certainly since the severe cuts uh, were brought in to the Ministry of Justice. And just to put it in a little perspective, um, between 2010 and 2020, the cuts will have been to the entire Ministry of Justice budget, um, approximately 40%. And that, that is, is virtually unrivaled. Uh, no other government department, with the, the possible exception of the, uh, the DWP, has, has suffered such cuts. Uh, and part of that, I'd suggest, is that if the government were to have attempted that, the public simply wouldn't have tolerated it. But going back to my early point, I think one of the problems is that because justice is something which we don't necessarily think we, we need, it's something which we are content for politicians to, to chip away at, um, ahead of what we perhaps consider more important priorities. But you feel the, the problems are down to resourcing um, more than they are inherent flaws in the structure of the system? I, I think so. I'm not by any means suggesting that the system is perfect and that it can't be changed. There are 
no doubt structural and systemic problems which go beyond mere funding. But I'd say it's a matter of, of simple common sense that, a, for example, a prosecution agency which was struggling at, in 2010 uh, can't lose a third of its workforce and suddenly be expected to perform uh, better um, than it was before. There are inevitably going to be uh, consequences and those are being played out in the, the criminal courts every day. And, and at the moment, there is a so-called barrister's strike on. Tell us a little bit about that and how that relates to some of the issues that you've raised. Well, it, it ultimately feeds into the reluctance or rather the refusal of the Ministry of Justice to, uh, to afford sufficient resources to the system. The current dispute between the criminal bar and the Ministry of Justice is, is a broad one. It's being painted as a dispute over fees that are being paid to barristers doing legal aid work, so defending people accused of criminal offences. And that certainly forms a part of the dispute. What we're saying is that the pay under legal aid for criminal defence has fallen so low um, the exact cut is difficult to quantify, but the best estimates are, again, around 40%. And many people, particularly at the junior end of criminal practice, so young people coming to the criminal bar, are taking home sometimes at less than minimum wage. And so part of the dispute is that we're saying this is simply untenable. The best people are not going to want to practice criminal law. And as a result, we're not going to have the best prosecutors. We're not going to have the best defence lawyers. We're not going to have the best judges who are drawn from that pool. So that is part of it. But broader than that, what we're saying is that the system as a whole is on its knees. And we're trying to draw attention to that and to force the Ministry of Justice to properly fight its corner with the Treasury because for too long it's been led by ministers who have been more than happy, either for ideological reasons or just through inertia, to offer up the department for cuts. And what we're saying is, no, we've had enough of turning up to court to see victims of crime being turned away for the third or fourth time because yet again a court doesn't have time or space to hear a trial because the courtrooms have been closed and because judges are that there are simply not enough judges. We're saying we've had enough of turning up to prosecute cases and finding that the basics haven't been done. We've had enough of turning up to defend cases and to find that disclosure, which is, you'll see from recent stories in the news, is an absolute shambles, has not been complied with. And as a consequence, relevant information, which could help secure an innocent person's acquittal, has simply not been provided because the police and CPS haven't had the, the time or resources to discharge that function properly. And so we're saying, putting this all together, the system is not fit for purpose. And as the people on the front line, most intimately acquainted with it, we think we have a duty to bring it to public attention. So we talk about a thing called the Jeffocracy on this podcast, where it's, I like to think of it as a, a utopia with me as the benevolent dictator at the top of the structure. If we put you in charge of uh, criminal justice, what's the first thing you do day one to start to unravel and to, to fix this? The first thing I would do, and I appreciate it sounds, it sounds like an oversimplification. It sounds like a, a very simplistic prescription, but I start with it because it's the most important. The system needs more money. I would immediately inject back into the system the funds to firstly restore the CPS and the police to at least their staffing and resource levels of 2010, but also to inject money into the legal aid budget so that anyone who is accused of a criminal offence gets proper, adequate and qualified legal representation. Because at present, the cuts to legal aid mean not only that there are the problems I've described with the, the rates of pay to lawyers, which I understand some people may not have much sympathy for, but on a more personal level, people who are accused of crimes are means-tested out of legal aid, or on a means-test that is not very much at all. If your joint household income 
um, your joint household disposable income, so that's if your partner and you, is £37,500 or more, you will get not a penny of legal aid if you're in the Crown Court. You will have to pay privately, private rates for lawyers. Let me tell you, they're a lot more than legal aid. And if you're then acquitted, you don't get your full rates back. You only get back legal aid rates. And so what it means is that you could end up having to pay your house or your life savings to secure your acquittal um, for having done absolutely nothing wrong other than having had the misfortune to be wrongly accused of a crime. So I think reversing that and ensuring that anyone who's accused of an offence gets legal aid and should not be out of pocket if they are later acquitted, um, that I think will be very near the top of my shopping list. If, if Jeff would permit that. You're very critical in the book of magistrates' courts and the way that, that works. You basically say because the system is creaking, half of nearly half of all victims wouldn't want to go through the giving evidence again. I mean, should we be, where should we be looking, do you think? Well, I'm starting with magistrates' courts. The first thing I should say, because it's something that I've spent an awful lot of time on social media and emails saying to enraged magistrates, is I do not doubt, in fact, I know for a fact that there are many brilliant magistrates who give up an awful lot of their time unpaid to contribute to their local communities by sitting as magistrates. And I, I salute them for that. They, they should be fully appreciated and I want to make clear that, that I do appreciate the sacrifices they make. But the problem I have that I express in the book is that we are asking lay people, volunteers, to perform what is a predominantly legal function. So this isn't like juries in the Crown Court who are simply deciding whether someone's innocent or guilty and applying the law that's decided and uh, interpreted by a qualified judge. These are magistrates who are effectively doing the jobs of judges. And so they're sending people to prison, they're deciding very complicated legal applications, and magistrates do not get very much training at all, certainly far less than people would expect. I set out the, the full details in the book. But um, and part of it is the recruitment process, the fact that you, you don't have, for example, as you do in most, most now graduate jobs, um, a critical reasoning test to make sure that you can properly apply your mind to um, you know, logical problems. But, but more than that, it's the culture of the magistrate's courts. The ethos is do it quick and do it cheap. It's a, a stack and high, sell and cheap model. There's so little time for either the prosecution or the defence to, to get things ready that trials are taking place and people's liberty are being determined in conditions of absolute chaos. And again, it sounds like I'm perhaps a set record on this, but a lot of that is because the Ministry of Justice is doing what it can to run these cases cheaply, as cheaply as possible. Um, it's, it's a bargain basement model, and as we all know, if you pay bargain basement rates, you don't get a particularly high quality of outcome, and that's what we're seeing in the magistrates' courts. As I say, I read the book. I think it's really, really fascinating read. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you very much for having me, Ed. We're joined now by Penelope Gibbs, who is Director of Transform Justice, which campaigns for reform for the criminal justice system. Hello, Penelope. Hi. Um, we were just talking to the, the secret barrister, and the impression I got is money is the problem. It's, it's the cuts that have been made. Would you agree with that? I'd, I mean, I'd say money is a problem. Unfortunately, with the sort of merry-go-round of Lord Chancellors we've had, the Ministry of Justice has ended up with the worst cuts in the whole of government, which is really has had terrible effects in the prisons and I would say in the courts too. I mean, I hear regularly about courts which are literally falling to bits. There was a court the other day where the jury were there and the ceiling started falling down. Oh, God. So we're, we're talking... not good. It, it's, <laughs> it's not good at all. Um, and so... And we've heard about conditions in prison, you know, prison staff going down. It's all part of the same budget. So money is part of the answer. But I would say it's not the whole answer. And if we were to have, you know, the perfect court system, adversarial system, one against the other with everybody doing everything uh, with enough time, enough evidence, et cetera, et cetera, that's a really, really expensive system. Somehow by putting 
two people up against each other, it ramps up the costs because there's the fight and you've got to get the evidence on both sides for that fight to be fair. So I would say in the current situation where I can't see any prospect of recovering the the money for the Ministry of Justice, as it stands, we can't afford every single court case to have that gold standard of how it should be properly resourced. So my solution would be let's shrink the system because the fact is you go to a magistrate's court, not enough people do, but actually... Um, I used to sit as a magistrate. I I do observe sometimes. I hear about them the whole time. And you see ridiculous cases where you know that this whole process is going to happen and some person with not much money is going to be fined for something like uh, breaking a window or stealing something from a shop or they're going to get something which is called a conditional discharge, which means basically nothing happens. So you see this kind of conveyor belt of people going through the magistrates' courts, a great cost, actually, where nothing effective is going to happen with them. So, so just to get this clear, you, you think the money is an issue, but you would also reform the system. Um, you, you don't think we can do the sort of adversarial thing, the sort of gold standard for everyone. So what would you what would you change? What well, would you every, in charge? If, we, if, if I was in charge, everybody in court would get more of a gold standard, particularly in the magistrates' courts, where, as the secret barrister writes, it's the Wild West and basically hardly anybody gets proper justice in those courts. I would take half of magistrates' courts' cases out of court altogether. They so what wouldn't... happens to them then? Well, there's various things you could do. Some uh, things um, I just think, what's the point in having, you know, a, a what you call a formal criminal justice response at all? For, so, for what kind of crime? For like, you know, minor shoplifting where, say, it's kind of somebody who really is on their uppers, um, and at the moment, that sometimes prosecuted goes to court. Sometimes it's got what's called an out of court disposal. So that's like a caution or something like that, where the police say, will you take a caution for this? Some of that stuff, I think, even that, is it worth it? You know, can we not get some help to the person who is doing the crime? I mean, it's the old thing, the causes of crime, but I'm afraid it's true. And so, but the others, there's two other things. I would put more of these cautions. It, it's important that people know what they're accepting, but actually the evidence for cautions and other of these uh, kind of things that the police do out of court is very good. Victims are actually happier with those than with going to court. That's Vic- like restorative justice type Or thing. you can do restorative justice. And victims don't want to go to court. It's a, it's a, you know, they kept waiting. It's delayed. It's a horrible process. They're happier with that. And actually the reduction in uh, offending, in crime, from people who get that stuff, which is out of court, which the police do kind of on the street, is better than for stuff that goes through court. So we could put more stuff with the... I mean, it has to have safeguards in terms of how the police do it and so on. But, you know, it, it's a it's a less is more solution. So one thing about crime is the more embedded people get into the formal system, the evidence is the more likely they are to commit crime. So if we can if we can do a sort of lighter touch, it actually can work better all the way around. And the other thing I would look at is there's a a scheme running in the West Midlands called Deferred Prosecution. And it's quite interesting. It's come out of the police. I, I, I know quite a few police who think that what happens in the magistrates' courts is is a kind of, a lot of the time, n- not effective and a waste of time. And, what, and they waste their time. So the police go to court on a kind of, you know, relatively minor offence, spend time waiting around, etc. Um. So a ex-chief constable called Peter Nehru said, why don't we just kind of do a different way of, of dealing with a level of crime of the magistrate's court? Let's say to the people, look, 
you know, we've got evidence against you. You uh, would otherwise be prosecuted and go to court, but we're giving you the choice. You, if you take it, you can do this program of kind of, you know, community service and, and stuff like that. what kind like of offences is that being piloted for in the West Midlands? All, all those kind of offences. Non-violent offences. No, I mean, some yeah. minor violent. Like, you know, you've been in, involved in a bit of a fight, but there's right. no injury that anybody right. can see and stuff like that, or theft or criminal right. damage, this kind of stuff. Right, and I interrupted you. And so so you say, they say to people, will you accept? Will you accept to go on this programme instead? And if you, if you accept to go on the programme and complete the programme, then... You don't have to go to court. And a lot of people are accepting to do the programme and getting through it and moving on in their lives. It's like drivers can do that as well, can't yeah. they? It when is they, like yeah. that. It's, it's like you can do a, a, a programme to reduce your um, your penalty points. You can do a, a course. But, this is, but that's after they've been to court, whereas right. this one is, you know, you don't have to go to court. And that programme in the West Midlands is working really well. Why can't we do that everywhere? And is there things we can learn from other countries? I mean, I think that I'm a big fan of restorative justice. So restorative justice is where there is some kind of uh, preparation for and then you've got to have somebody who's admitting guilt to whatever it is. So they can either have gone through the court or not. And then there is some meeting between either the victim or a representative of the victim and the person who's who's done the crime. So the crime is discussed and the crucial thing is that the person who does the crime says sorry to to the victim or the community representatives or whatever, but also makes amends. And the person in the driving seat is the victim here. So the victim discusses what the person who did the crime might do to make... So what making amends looks like to them. Yeah, to them. And so it has a real meaning. And other countries like uh, New Zealand, even Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland for um, under-18-year-olds, they do an amazing restorative justice programme. And actually, the, the interesting thing about restorative justice is that we want the victim to come out of the process uh, slightly less uh, bitter and cross. But it has been talked about here for some time, I hasn't know. it? And it hasn't, has it not really happened? It really hasn't happened. Right, I, see. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of, there's some great right. projects here and there, but unless you embed it in the system. So in New Zealand, they embed it in the system. In Northern Ireland, they've, they've you know, the government has said, if you're a teenager who's been convicted of a crime, um, either kind of before getting to court or at court, this is what you do. And um, so that is something, it's it's not cheap, I have to say, but I think it's much more effective because there's a lot of what's done in the criminal justice system which doesn't actually help. The and reoffending rates are incredibly high and so on. And we did a whole, we actually did a, a podcast on, on the prison system. And, you know, that's one of the things that came out. Yeah. Well. I mean, I, I would use restorative justice at any point in the system. And, and I think that it, that definitely could be a game changer. What about the adversarial system? Because other countries don't have the adversarial system. They have a more, I think they call it inquisitorial It is s- inquisitorial. And so, yes, I mean, that do. would obviously be a massive change. So what, of years. what does that look like then? It, basically, you have a kind of investigating magistrate and they're sort of like a combination between the police and the, and the, the judge. And if you want to understand it, you need to look at, watch the French detective thing called I think it's called Spiral. Oh, Spiral! I right, call it yeah. Spiral. 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 <laughs> Sorry. Put the French Sorry. on it, but it is actually yeah. a, no, it's brilliant. Have you seen it? I haven't seen that. No. Oh anyway, my word! That's, it's some that's of the best sort of... TV that you but anyway, could watch. Do, do we want the spir- Spiral for Britain? Um, seems like a big sort of upheaval. It it would be massive i would yeah. i would start by bringing it in for for under 18 year olds though i think you i mean the scottish do it so the scottish for under 18 year olds have a panel system which is inquisitorial for like you know a 15 year old who who does a and did they a always crime. have that or did that new 
Um, something called the Kilbrandon Report. So, um, amazingly, you know, the Scots have got a very different system in yeah, general. Sure. And um, at a certain point, I can't remember the Kil- Kilbrandon Report was in the sixties at right. some point, and they got Kilbrandon to do a review. He said, "Let's just, you know, completely change the system here in Scotland for for children." And he did. And it, I can't, you know, what's the tragedy is we didn't follow their lead, and we still for the for you know 12 year olds have an adversarial system where the 12 year old has no idea what's going on I mean that's the other thing about the adversarial system which I really don't like is you get it's really complicated our law the processes are really complicated and so you get you know the lawyers and the everybody who's professional understanding what's going on meanwhile the defendant the witnesses they're clueless as to to what is happening to them this is a pretty glum discussion for reasons that are totally understandable. Is there a reason to be cheerful in all this? What's your what, Since you're somebody who thinks this day in, day out, works on it day in, day out, you don't seem downhearted, you seem determined. What's the sort of thing that keeps you going? I mean, you can't be a campaigner without being yeah. optimistic. You just wouldn't... You, you couldn't, wouldn't get out of bed. No, you wouldn't get out of bed. Reasons to be cheerful, um, a couple really. I think there are... You know, the police are, you know, at at the top level, there's some excellent police who really understand that prison isn't necessarily the answer, that prosecution isn't necessarily the answer. And, And that is, you know, a good thing because they obviously are very influential on the whole system. I'm not saying all police are like that. Um, But equally, I'm seeing some uh, kind of optimism from this administration in terms of a... Rory Stewart is saying that short prison... He's the prison's minister. He's the prison's minister and he's been saying openly that he thinks short prison sentences are ineffective. And maybe it says one thing that the crisis is is sort of doing it's forcing it might force a rethink presumably exactly exactly so so those those things are you know and there is less crime isn't that you know crime in general i know bits of it has spiked but over the last 10 years crime has gone down a lot Penelope Gibbs, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more uh, about the work you're doing at Transform Justice, they can go to your website. Please go to my website. Please sign up for my blog or follow me on Twitter. Look, what do you think about the issue seriously? I mean, it, you know, it is such a disaster, this. Mm. It feels to me like if it was any other public service, they'd be like marching on the street. People would be furious. Um, it would never have been allowed to get to this point. But because people rarely, you know, you know, <laughs> Most people aren't convicted or, or of crimes or indeed, you know, tried for crimes. And people who have crimes committed against them, well, maybe it mostly doesn't go to court. It, it kind of, people never see it. So people yeah. complain about lack of police, the police cuts and so on, but they didn't see this somehow. So it's kind of, it just, it's a kind of silent crisis. And it is, and it's difficult to root out the optimism in it, in a way, I think the best we can manage is what Penelope said: is that things are so bad that people are starting to have a look at it because you know it, it needs turning around. But but it, it does sound like you know there's things out there: this deferred prosecutions idea, the restorative justice idea. I mean, more radically going for this Scottish system for young people. I mean, that's obviously quite a big thing. But but I've had my eyes really opened by reading this book about what is going on and. You know, it really feels there is there is urgency. And the fact that, you know, you've got barristers going on semi-strike suggests the, the depth of the crisis and that, you know, it's been right for us to cover it and um, things need to change. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We would love to hear from you if you've got thoughts on what we've been talking about today. You can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast or on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. We had a lot of response uh, to last week's episode about veganism and meat consumption. Oh, I meant to mention actually last week, if people haven't seen John Ronson's film, Okja, on Netflix, it's really good. Uh, it's a film that John co-wrote a lot of people are known from his journalism and it's not um explicitly about veganism but um it might get you thinking in that direction What's it called? it's called okja o-k-j-a this comes from jackie crawford who says hi i try to eat vegan as often as i can but eat some dairy and eggs and i do eat meat very infrequently I think the issue of affordability is central. People living in poverty tend to have poor diets, and often the best value in food choices on a poor budget means highly processed, badly produced, unfresh food. I cook and eat meat on special occasions like Christmas and Easter, but always choose to buy from small, local, sustainable, cruelty-free sources, which is fine for a splurge a few times a year, but out of the question for even once a week shopping. I also find cultured meats and meat alternatives interesting, but wonder about the health issues of what must be highly processed food. Health advisors suggest we not just eat less meat, but avoid processed foods. How do we reconcile these? She also says, I really love your show. You're both so funny and human. You've great topics and guests. I can't believe you're going to miss that bit out. I'm I'm very humble. You you do the... uh, The brag. You do the humble and I do the brag. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Next uh, comes from Dr. James Lloyd. Um, who is from the University of Western Australia. I think he's the first double dipper when it comes to the uh, listeners' comments. He's the guy who pointed out you weren't a borderline millennial. He's he's come crawling back, has he, to have another pop? Yeah, (laughs) yes. Um, he's obviously, look, I, I think he was right on the first thing. So I think he deserves a second, <laughs> a second bite at the cherry. Now he enjoyed our vegetarian vegan episode. But he says, as a plant geneticist, I was appalled to hear suggestions that the Impossible Burger has safety questions surrounding it due to GM being used in its production. GM is a safe technology. Issues surrounding it are often raised, usually for ideological reasons rather than scientific, in the same way as climate change deniers. This is ironic given the potential for GM crops to overcome issues with climate change by reducing pesticide use and making drought-tolerant crops. I think this will be an excellent topic for the podcast to cover. Regarding the comments about GM yeast being made to use impossible burgers and the protein being made, the yeast is being used to make a soy protein which has been consumed by humans for thousands of years. Making it in yeast is more scalable. It would potentially be worse for the environment to farm lots of plants for this one protein. The FDA does not need to approve the impossible burger under US law, but the creators sought approval in an attempt to be open and beyond question. The FDA has not made an official statement on the safety of this product yet. Sadly, the creator's attempt at being open is being used against them by organisations that are anti-GMO. The soy, wheat and potato proteins found in the Impossible Burger are very common in a vegan plant-based diet. Believe me, being GMO has nothing to do with this. All the best, James. This comes from William Streetfield, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, he, he tells us that he listens to the podcast often. It's made him look at things in a different light. Particularly, he says, uh, one of my favourites was the Land Tax podcast. I'm a herd manager on a dairy farm and also a farmer's son who will one day return home. It made me look at my privilege in a different light. And despite my family's despair, I'm definitely a fan of Land Tax Amazing. too. So just like... 
Chris Grayling, we're, we're exactly. changing minds here. Um, William goes on to say, I do, however, draw the line at people actively attacking my industry with claims that, in my opinion, are unfounded. Where I work, a lot of people would describe the farm as industrial. I work for a family farm that has just over a 1,000 cows who are kept indoors all year round. The main reason being that they lost all their cows to BTB a few years ago and this is the only way in their control to stop this problem happening again the welfare that we practice is of a very high standard every cow is monitored and looked after very well we use no critically important antibiotics and we have incredibly low antibiotic use generally i've worked a range of dairy farming systems from new zealand where cows are kept outdoors all year round to high yielding indoor systems and the thing that affects welfare of animals is not if they are indoor or outdoor but the management great and the next is from sam johnson um who says how much they enjoyed the uh recent podcast on the effects of meat and importance of cutting down our consumption of meat uh and and speaks as a vegan um a couple of points in the episode where organic farming was brought up and here i think you went beyond the evidence slightly in the implied positive evaluations of it while it is true that organic farming does not usually handle animals similar to factory farming and so leads to better quality of life, it has other problems. First is it doesn't use synthetic fertilisers, it's reliant on animal manure, which ties it to meat production. Secondly, it's less efficient and so uses more land and produces more CO2 than conventional farming. A recent study in Germany found that organic diets, even with 45% less meat consumption, still produce similar CO2 emissions and higher land use from conventional diets with significantly higher meat consumption. Also, there are some myths surrounding organic farming. It is healthier and it does not use pesticides. Multiple meta-analyses have shown that organic foods are not healthier than non-organic food, and the pesticides that organic farming uses, while naturally occurring, are no less toxic or better for the environment than their modern conventional counterparts. In many cases, they are worse. Finally, there are the economic impacts as inefficiencies cause increased prices. Sorry for the rant, not sure if this will be worth a quick discussion, but it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts as this is an area where the marketing and perception of the organic industry go far beyond the science. We provoke lots of debate. Let it carry on. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Alfie Brown. Hello. 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 Hi. Ed's been admiring your man bun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry about it. Radio is the perfect place for a man bun, I think. There's no man bun in the House of Commons. Is there not? There's nobody with a man bun. Not even in the SNP. Oh, actually, there is somebody in the SNP. Yeah, see, I told you. Yeah, yeah. that is true. Well, you I could, you could that was be... actually a guess. I have no idea no, who that right. is, but it would, it would be the SNP, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. You could true. still be the first um, Labour Party MP with a man bun. That's, that's the place in history I've always desired, actually. So, Alfie, you brought along some ideas which could be potential reasons. To be just careful. ideas. Yeah. Just They're just ideas. Well, let, let's hear your first There are no bad ideas in brainstorming. So, uh, so what's your first one? To make uh, uh, philosophy compulsory uh, in the same way that maths, science and history is in uh, primary school education. So did you do philosophy? No. I was so jealous when I left school. I went to go and work in Topshop when everybody else went to university. And my friend Lorenzo, he's very sexy. Uh, and he went to Bristol University to do uh, philosophy. Does he have a man bun as well? He has no man bun. No. He's very straight there. He looks no. like Charlie from Boosted. Right. Um, he's also got a very British, strong, kind of robust Bristol accent. Yeah. Um, but his name's Lorenzo McClellan. Anyway, uh, he went to go and do uh, philosophy and... Um, and I was really, I was really, really uh, jealous. So I've, I've started my own podcast, which is me teaching myself philosophy. What a good idea! Going through the syllabus from different universities, oh, reading the called? books, the academy. When I listen to philosophy podcasts on the elliptical trainer at the gym, as I'm prone to do, yeah, uh, I do get slightly sort of um, sent to sleep by the stultifying way in which these people speak about philosophy. So, like, oh, so we've got the... And also, because they're academics, they don't know how to speak about it in a normal so way. So it's accessible right. philosophy, basically. Yeah, like, with, you know, with, with you know, swearing and I don't know what on earth he's on about. It's very, very wow. complicated. Well, I, so we should do it in schools, basically. We should do philosophy in schools. There is a... a Are you saying uh, they should introduce your podcast onto the syllabus? Is this where no, this no, no, is no, going? No, no, There's far too much... Swe- Are we swearing on this? Yeah. You yeah, yeah. You can? Okay, that's yeah. fun. I mean, it's just... I won't. But it's nice to know that I can. Uh, 
Yeah, there's a there's actually an organisation called Sapere P4C Philosophy for Children, and they do various things. I'm not sure what they do or how they teach it, but I think in a world of critical thinking, an adult population would be a lot more immune to evils like populism and Ed Sheeran. <laughs> and we could call it STEM, science, you know, STEM, oh, science, yeah, yeah, technology, yeah. engineering, maths. Yeah, very, very easy and to just stick a P on the philosophy. end of there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that is great, STEM, actually. Yeah, or put STEM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all right, we'll have that. Yeah. Okay, great. What have you got next? To uh, reduce the uh, speed limit on motorways to 30 miles an hour. Oh, why? Just to, no deaths anymore. But isn't there a thing in Germany where people always say, well, there are no speed limits on the autobahns? Yeah, people and... still die. It's just right. less because there's a speed is limit. Is that true? I, th- I, th- I don't know. There are some auto- autobahns. Maybe you drive to Austria on an autobahn <laughs> um, and get there very quickly. Um, and yeah, there's no speed limit on them. But yeah, if you decrease the speed limit to 30 miles an hour, then nobody, then you'd, be, you'd decrease fatalities by near 100%. But the reason why I like this is because because we don't want this to happen, and nobody wants it to happen. We all want it to be 70 so we can get from London to Liverpool in three less and a half than, hours as opposed to... Less than to, eight hours, yeah. 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 But so we agree that people have to die so we can get there quickly. God, that's bleak. Yeah, but it's a brilliant kind of bleak truth. But it's not the, it's not the speed that's causing the deaths. It's people not paying attention, proper attention at speed. Yeah, but you, you can't legislate against a lack of concentration. So you need to protect against quite a human default, uh, 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 defect. Sorry, not default. Yeah, and and we've decided that it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. If we can get to, Manchester. but I think also this is kind of is it allegorically or uh, you know metaphorically quite interesting about how politics works. We agree that some people have to die so that although you never people never admit it, yeah, no. but nobody ever does. We could save hundreds and hundreds of lives each year by just. Uh, Making the speed limit thirty miles an hour, but we would never. I wonder do what it. the lowest, yeah. the slowest speed limit. Yeah, on a major. It's going to be. It's going to be Scandinavia. Somewhere. No, we, I don't think it is actually. So I've spent a bit of time over there, and I think it's hundred and ten kilometers. Uh, is the top speed limit over there, which is what like seventy five, eighty, something like that? Great. Yeah. So okay, we'll we'll throw it out and see. We will if we. Uh, yeah, it wasn't really one that I wanted you to agree or disagree. No, no, I just no. Wanted I think to no. Sort of, you're making an interesting point. Yeah, I think it could be episode two of your philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I do hope so. crossover. Uh, Alfie, um, so the podcast people will be able to find if they look at the. Yeah, Academy, if you look it up, it Alfie should Brown. be. It should be on iTunes. I mean, it doesn't take long to get on iTunes, so it should be on iTunes very shortly. And new episodes of that. And please, please, I know this is going to sound bad, but please will you just follow me on Instagram because it's important for my career. I'm not promising you anything. <laughs> can you just buy like, some followers and then no, show the TV commissioners No, it doesn't work like that because they that. can tell, they can tell. I need... Didn't work for us. <laughs> I need TV commissioners. Alfie Brown, thank you so much. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro and it's, and it's a special it outro. It's a special outro with a special guest just <laughs> for the outro. It's my mother-in-law, Lynn Barron. Hi, everybody. Barron. Come on down. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is a beautiful moment because Ed and Lynn are reunited after your uh, your, your tryst in, in Chicago. Lynn, Lynn was an absolutely brilliant babysitter of my children. Um, it just outstandingly good. They absolutely loved her. Except for the part where I almost left them alone, like, and you, you would have been you would have been arrested. Yeah, Lynn illegally. Went, Lynn went to the hotel reception to leave. I said, "Is it okay? I'm leaving the seven and the eight year old upstairs just for an hour. Their dad's on their way back." And they told you they said, "You can't do that. That's a Against the law. And I said, well, I have to go back. I don't think an MP should break the law in Chicago. <laughs> but to be fair... She went the extra mile to stop me breaking I the did, law. I did, I did, and you bought me a burger. Exactly. To be fair, the film Shake Home Shake. Alone is set in Chicago, isn't it? Is that right? I think yes, so, yes, 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 yes could have it been is. Macaulay Culkin. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Lynn is doing the impersonation of Macaulay Culkin, <laughs> which also looks a little like an impersonation of Edvard Munch's The Screen. I was thinking exactly the same. Yeah. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Let me just say on behalf of your son-in-law, Jeff, it is lovely to have you here, Thank Lynn. you, thank you. The country is a richer, better place to have you here. Thank you. We should thank our guests. We should. We're going to thank The Secret Barrister and also Penelope Gibbs, Director of Transform Justice. Absolutely fascinating discussion. And comedian Alfie Brown. Make sure you go and see him in Edinburgh. And make sure you come and see us in Edinburgh too, I think. Definitely. I think that... T- You're right over there, Lynn. Yeah, Lynn's just destroying the furniture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
Emma Corsham <laughs> produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Feisbryce and Lindsay Todd. James Deacon made our ident. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was designed by... Emily Power. Emily, I spoke to Emily on the phone the other day and she said um, her friends every week uh, have a little discussion about how enthusiastically you say her name. I think sometimes you get very giddy when you say it. Power to the Emily Power. Yes. What do we want? Power to the Emily. (laughs) When do we want it now? Right, we should sign off. Um, He's been the man with the load of old Horlicks. He's been the Ovaltini. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.